HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Kirby, founder and CEO of Ithaca Hummus, the cold-pressed, absolutely delicious hummus in the square little white tubs. Ithaca is an example of a great product that began at the farmer's market and grew up not only because people love it, but because of smart leadership. I met Chris in the Chobani incubator, and I've had a crush on his business, I think is the right way to say it, for a couple years now, and I've been trying to get him on the show. So Chris, welcome. Nice to have you. Thanks, Allie. Thank you for, for having me. Yeah, I don't know nice that I've ever here. said I have a crush on someone's business before, but there there was really no like appropriate way to say that. So mm, I like it. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, first off, we're in uh, a brave new world where I think it's the beginning of week four of sort of this pandemic-y quarantine uh, situation. And as I recall, your team kind of worked remotely to some extent anyway. People are in different places. Is that is that right? Yeah. Um, we all kind of work. Uh, well, I, first of all, I work out of my home in Raleigh. So mm-hmm. our corporate office is in Rochester, New York. So right. just, you know, by way of me being remote, it, it kind of feels like we all are to an extent. Right. Um, but our office is in Rochester, and we do have a handful of folks that, that go into the office every day. Right. Got it. Um, and how how is everybody? How are you? How's your team? How's everyone's emotional and physical and, you know, spiritual well-being? <laughs> yeah. Um, very, there's, I would say, varying degrees of concern and you know anxiety across across the team mm-hmm. um 
I kind of play the role of like, hey, let's keep it positive. Let's think about how fortunate we are to be, um, you know, not as affected by this from a from a business perspective as right. so many others are out there. Mm-hmm. What can we do to help? Um, but then, of course, you know, everybody stay home and and stay safe. Right. Yeah, I've noticed. It's funny because I've noticed on LinkedIn. You know, you're very much kind of out there sort of rallying everyone and it's it is this very positive um kind of tone. And I wonder if you've been, you know, if that's sort of on purpose to some extent, or if you have thought about how to set the tone. I think I, I'm asking because I want to sort of be the fearless leader and I want to be the galvanizer. Um, But I also want to just make sure that I'm being sensitive to sort of the trauma of this. And candidly, like there are some days I wake up pretty traumatized myself. So I'm just sort of trying to figure out how to lead as best I can, being empathic, but also being sort of, you know, a cheerleader to some extent. So I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think there is a line uh, between being positive and looking at the bright side and kind of coming coming across as tone deaf. Mm-hmm. And you really have to make sure, um, or at least I try to, to straddle that as best as I can. Right. Um, I think part of it is, like I said, like we are um, fortunate uh, because I mean, you take take uh, Haven's Kitchen for example. You kind of have both sides of this. Like, yeah. on one side of it, your CPG business is probably yeah. you know surging, and yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But your brick and mortar is closed, and yep. I've got a lot of um, chef friends. I was a chef, so yeah, it's the community that I come from, and so. Um, while yeah. I'm excited and and you know optimistic about the CPG uh, business, um, certainly staying in touch with with all yeah. of my peers in in brick and mortar too. Yeah, you know it's it's really. I mean, you know me very well. I do. I feel like I've been sort of this split human for the last month because I'm in like a lot of triage mode for the brick and mortar. Um, and like, how do I, you know, without being gross, capitalize on the opportunity for the CPG, you know, not to say that sales aren't going to be affected for the CPG because they are just simply due to resets, getting kicked back and, you know, buyer meetings and whatnot, but you're right. Like having a pantry staple product isn't the worst business to be in right now. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think I do sort of vacillate back and forth a little bit with my moods on each. Um, and so do you, are you doing daily Zooms? Are you, you know, trying to do virtual happy hours? Like how are you kind of keeping the team together? And and did you do that before anyway? I mean, I guess that's my question. Since you weren't where headquarters are, how, how did you, have you found that this situation is sort of, um, that you already had some things in place that now are just becoming more useful that we're all trying to figure out? Yeah, I think to an extent we were already prepared for what it's what it would be like to work together but not be not be together. Right. Um and so 
we're not. That being said, we don't do like virtual happy hours. I look at other companies. I'm like, that's <laughs> right. so great. I wish we did stuff like that. And right. then I think, well, well, that's well, we kind of up to me. To <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. We could have a mixer. We yeah, could have a virtual sure. mixer. I mean, everyone on my team would love to see Frank. I can tell you that much. Um, I I almost sent you his headshot with mine when you oh asked for gosh, it. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! We'll talk about him in a minute. But all right. So so going back. So you know, usually on the show we sort of spend the first half kind of talking about you know your road to entrepreneurship and what you want it to be and all of that stuff. But we're gonna do that pretty quickly to get down to brass tacks. You grew up in Baltimore. Did you always love cooking or were you? did that come later? I, I guess there was kind of like a, a, flip, a switch that flipped um, when I was probably around 14, 15, started to think about like, okay, what am I going to do when I am finished high school? Right. Um, and uh, I, was, I was already working as a dishwasher um, at that point and really did – love being in a kitchen and in a restaurant and mm-hmm. uh i you know i would say it was around then I, I truly realized that my calling was to be a chef yep and so you chose to go directly into that as opposed to going to college so i did go to culinary school um right. And uh, yeah, so but but I went directly to culinary school. Didn't do like a four year right. degree, and then go to. And a lot of people do that. Um, I just went straight to culinary school. Yep. And then, um, and then that's kind of when. So how? So because you you ended up moving to Ithaca, right? But was that because you decided to go to Cornell, or was that like how did how did the time happen? Yeah, so I went to culinary school and then I worked for about six years as a chef. Um, it worked in lots of different restaurants all over the country. And um, again, like during that time frame, I think I just realized that I loved the way it felt for me to influence other people with my food. Yeah. The way that I was influenced when I was younger. Um, right. And as I started to realize that, I my ambitions grew and I, you know, my dreams kind of like went running wild and <laughs> felt like how can I how can I expand this influence to a larger scale? Um, and it was so you I guess the question is then so you you kind of knew at that point that you wanted a product as opposed to just like opening your own restaurants and having sort of like a hospitality empire because it's it's an interesting shift to go to a product that early. I think a lot of us who are in the food world who who love nurturing people with food and love the hospitality world, um, it takes us a while to kind of figure out that a product might be a good idea. But it seemed like you got that hunch early. Yeah, I did. Um, and I, I, you know, I wanted to grow my influence and I wanted it to be bigger than a restaurant. Yeah. Yep. And, and faster. Um, yeah. But I didn't know how to start a business. I didn't know very much about business at all. So I needed to learn, you know, how do you business? And so, do you um, remember? Sorry, because I'm just thinking about you as like this young chef. Like, do you remember thinking about ideas at that point? Like, did were you like I should make frozen dinners or I should make 
this really great hummus or, you know, cookie or like, were you thinking about that? And then, all right, now I need to go get the skills to know how to do that. Or were you just like, there's something big out there that I have to figure out. And this is my first step. I had tons of, of business ideas right. and it was just like nonstop thinking about them. But I, di- I didn't, I never really married myself to any of them until right. I knew more about how it was going to work yep. um, and Smart. what like the successful <laughs> like components needed to be, you know yeah. what I mean? Good, good, good job on your part. <laughs> A lot of us are like, I just want to make the most amazing fill in the blank ever. And then we realize like, wait, the supply chain is terrible and the margins are awful and there's actually no market for this at all. So I, this is why this is why I go back to the introduction. You are one of the smarter guys that I've met in this whole board game that we're all playing together of like, you know, life CPG. Um, because, I, because I think that you're thinking about things ahead of when a lot of us, we get there, but some of us get there after we've given away a lot of our company or we've gone through a few years of really painful spending or, you know, so this is just why I think you're really, you're really smart. So thank you. I'm flattered. Because you wanted to go build something and you had all these ideas and you wanted to know which ideas were the good ones, that's when you went to Cornell. Yeah. I would say that I went to Cornell to learn how to do like accounting and finance right. and, yep. you know, the, the, the like hard skills. Um, and when I got there, uh, Cornell is in Ithaca, New York, in upstate in the upstate region, and it's very agricultural and has this very eclectic lifestyle. They have a very robust, like booming farmers market. And I just went there, obviously, as a chef, like the first weekend that I was there, right. and um, just was absolutely shocked that there was no one selling fresh hummus. And that was when it kind of clicked for me. Like this is the product. This is the and, place, yeah. And I'm going to figure out how to do this. And so you basically you went. I think this is going to sound super cheap. It's like you went through the school of life. Like you you learned you learned it theoretically at the same time that you learned it practically because you built the business while in school. So you were applying everything that you were learning to to every weekend at the farmers market, basically. Right. Uh, basically, yeah. I mean, I had this ready-built network of professors slash consultants that right. <laughs> I could go with, go to, and be like, "Well, hey, you know, this is what's going on," and and they were very engaged because it, I f- I feel like it was kind of a unique thing for someone mm-hmm. to do going to school there. Yeah. No, I'm sure, and it's. I mean, there's nothing like a practical, you know, case study in you know in real time. Um, but it it's a lot. I mean. My daughter started a tie-dye company like this weekend basically to you know cuz she's bored and in you know quarantine <laughs> basically tie-dyeing everything she can get her hands on and she kind of looked at me yesterday and she's like this is really hard. I'm like mhm <laughs> yes it is. Um but basically how did you know so so it took you how long from your first visit at the farmer's market to being there with a booth with samples for people and selling hummus? It was, it was about a month. I mean, as a (laughs) chef, I, I I knew how to make hummus already. Um, 
And so it took a little bit of tinkering and like experimenting in my kitchen. And then the other kind of delay there was that it, it takes uh, quite an effort to get into a lot of farmers markets yeah, in the country. Sure. Um, but especially the Ithaca farmers market, it was it was a process. There's a review yep. board and they want to make sure that they know you and like you mm-hmm. and your product. So um, it took about it took about a month. Um, That's not very long, Chris, just so you know. (laughs) It's pretty quick. (laughs) Um, I was eager. Yes. And then um, how long were you at the farmer's market before you got a call from a retailer saying, we want this? Or were you just actively sort of seeking retailers? And was there anything that you kind of needed to do when that call happened that you weren't really quite ready for? Mm-hmm. Well, here's how that kind of went. Um, and I think this will be helpful um, for, for your listeners. So I, in the short form of the story, it's like we were at the farmer's market for six months and then Wegmans just like wonderfully, magically discovered <laughs> us. Right. Um, but if you dig a little bit deeper, like what was actually going on there was as a chef, like I went to the Ithaca Wegmans and I didn't ask to speak to the hummus buyer i said who's the chef here like let me mm-hmm. let me just sit down with the chef and here's the uh, this product that i make i sell it at the farmer's market on the weekend i'm not trying to sell you anything i just chef to chef like want your feedback and yeah would would just love to talk to you about it and then that yeah. I, I kind of planted the seed yeah. and there's so a great ended expression up- yeah, mm-hmm. sorry i'd hate to interrupt you but there's a really good expression it's like i've heard a lot is you know, when you want money, ask for advice. And when you want advice, ask for money. And it's a little similar with sales, you know, like I think a lot of it is you can't just kind of walk into the room and be like, here's what I need. You know, I think that what people, I think the reason why people try to disrupt this this industry, you know, and and a lot of it successfully was because they were sort of tired of having to build those relationships and they thought the only relationship they needed to build was with the consumer. Um but but this but this business is is very much a relationship business. And even if you are starting D2C, everyone just keep your eye on like retailers are people and human and going in there and sort of wanting to just like make them take something as opposed to having a conversation and starting to build a relationship is probably not going to work. So again, you know, good advice on your part. And what happened when you did sort of start that conversation with the chef? Well, he was um, excited and and understood as someone who was passionate about food, like what, what was different about my product and what they had on the shelf. And right. Um, I think he kind of pulled some strings and got some people interested and they ended up showing up at the booth, um, one Saturday and, and, and yeah, um, a few weeks after that, I was, uh, pulling up my Toyota Camry (laughs) to the back of the Ithaca Wegmans with a cooler full of hummus. What was your shelf life at that time? It was seven days. Um, (laughs) so very, uh, very, very short, multiple deliveries a week. Wow. (laughs) And is that kind of when it clicked like, okay, you know, I always ask sort of what was the moment that you knew you had a business or like, okay, this is, this is on the road now. Um, 
it wasn't quite. I mean, once we started really growing with Wegmans and, you know, the first store turned into a handful and then that grew again. And uh, we started working with Whole Foods in Metro New York. Like mm-hmm. that, that really started to feel like, okay, I'm on to something. And if I can just focus now on how to compete at a regional level, I might one day have the opportunity to compete as, at a national level. And were you selling to all of those Wegmans and Whole Foods still with a seven-day shelf life? Uh, over the course of that first like year, we were able to bump it up uh, to 14 and then to 28. <laughs> right. um, so we had, we had a little bit more, but, but, yeah. but not, not much. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I sort I think people who listen probably know, like I kind of reverse engineered a little bit because I sort of went to, before I made the sauce, I kind of went to everyone that was in the industry that I knew and said like, what is the minimum shelf life that I should have if I want this to be like a real thing? And they said minimum 90 days, 120 is um, optimal for a fresh product. Um, so I'm just thinking, you know, 28 days, like you were still, you were still dropping off everything. You would produce it and then just drop it off at the stores basically. Cause like, even with the distributor, it's, that's tough. That's like a tight turnaround. Well, I, I had a distributor at the time. Um, I was doing about 20 stores by myself, um, out of the back of a car. Um, but then beyond that, like. I found a distributor who were, was interested in distributing to those 20 stores and also had like 80 more that right. they could get us into. But I went into that and really sold this vision of like, guys, it's fresh. Like you have yep. to come pick it up from me right? and like basically immediately get it to the store. You can't hold inventory. We'll make yep. it as frequently as you want, make it to order. And we were able to kind of work it out that way for a little while. Okay, I think it's a good time to take a break. Um, and then we'll be back and hear sort of, I feel like that was your like infant stage. And then you just kind of like, you went toddler, big kid pretty quickly. So we'll be right back. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S. grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor, U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. I'm back with Chris Kirby from Ithaca Hummus. Okay, so you're in Wegmans, you're in Whole Foods, you're producing it in, you know, a I presume like some sort of an, an like an industrial kitchen space, but not. Is that right? Basically, yeah. Or yeah. I I started yeah I started out renting a summer camp kitchen. Okay, <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. 
And you're producing on demand and you're, you know, getting more traction and getting into more stores. Um, so there was a turning point um, where that worked for a certain scope. Um, but did you realize that it wasn't going to work sort of beyond that scope or did the opportunity with the co-packer come to you? And tell us the story kind of of what happened next. So I had moved out of the summer camp kitchen, built out a 10,000 square foot facility of my own that I really struggled to operate for about two years. And it was around um, a year into that that I met a guy named Zach Gazaniga um, and the and the the team at Sir Kensington's. They were developing a new product called Fabanese. And yep. one of the, well, the main ingredient is, is aquafaba, um, which is the, the chickpea water that we had left over when we, after we boiled our chickpeas. Yep. So we forged a relationship with, with Sir Kensington's. We worked on uh, Fabanese together and uh, Zach ended up introducing me to this great guy that we all know and love, Frank Cavallero. Um, <laughs> And Frank was the VP of research and development at a, another manufacturer in the upstate region called Ledestri Foods. Yay. Um, so Ledestri Foods and Frank had just um, undertaken this huge project to install um, an HPP machine in one of their facilities. And, and just so, so everyone knows... HPP, there's another word for it, but think of it as just high pressure pasteurization. And it's also the same machine that we use for sauce. And and the way we sort of describe that is you can kill the stuff that you don't want to be eating by boiling it at a very high temperature for a while, or by adding all sorts of additives and preservatives to it, or you can kill those things with pressure. Um, it's in cold water and there's a certain amount of pressure. And so the sauce and the, and the hummus are actually made now on the same HPP line, which we'll get to. Um, but we, you keep all of the flavors and like the micronutrients and you don't have to add things to kill stuff and you don't have to boil the taste and like those micronutrients out. Is that the way you describe it too? Perfect. To a T. So they, Ledestri was in the process of putting in this HPP machine. They're, I know they were making Sir Kensington's at Ledestri. You're talking to, to Sir Kensington's about giving them aquafaba for their fabanes. And then basically Frank was the guy who was like, why don't we all just come together and do one big hoopla? <laughs> That wasn't his. Uh, that wasn't his <laughs> attitude at the beginning. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> no, really? no. I love this. Um, he was like too complicated. Not what yeah. we do. That kind of yeah. Exactly. Um, I Frank Frank did though to his credit. Like he's always been a very ferocious kind of like. If there's someone that needs help or a small business in the region, yeah. like I want to learn about them and I want to see if we can help them. And so yeah. he brought a crew of people from Ledestri to my plant at the time and um, which was like a two hour drive through like cow country. So (laughs) thank you to Frank for that. Um, And they came and they were like, wow, like this is a real thing. Like he's, he's actually figured some stuff out and 
um, his where he was initially like, you just keep making your hummus and send mm-hmm. it to us and we'll HPP it. My angle was like, no, I, that costs too much. Like I yep. can't ship it to you and all that. And so I really needed Ledestri to make it from start to finish. And it took about a year of convincing Frank yep. to do that. Um, and, and eventually he said yes. And that's where we really started kicking things off with Ledestri. Um, And I just have to thank you for doing that because you basically like made footprints in the snow for me to follow in Um, Mm -hmm. because it didn't take me as long to convince them, you know, about the sauce because they had already gone through this process with such a great entrepreneur. So I'm lucky and I appreciate it. Um, Foot, footprints in the snow is a very accurate way to visualize Rochester, New York. Right. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know what? Thank you. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about what you said, because one of the things that, um, you know, I think especially right now with with sort of trying to sort of prepare ourselves or protect ourselves from what's going on with the coronavirus is you know, those of us who have good product margins are in a better position. And a product margin basically is, you know, how much it costs your product to make um, relative to what you're selling it for. And, And basically there's like, there is a calculation with COGS and stuff like that. But for the most part, your product margin is different than your gross margin, because the gross margin takes in trade spend. So for a lot of people we know early stage, their product margins are still, you know, 25, 35, you know, 40%. And that's just not high enough once you then have to go spend on trade and then you have all of your other expenses on top of it. And you knew that you started putting two and two together, I imagine, when you were in the plant. Because once you start adding HPP into your cost of goods and then having to get it on a truck to get HPP'd within 24 hours and adding in all that freight, it just probably added all of this expense that you knew you couldn't take on. Is that kind of what happened? Yeah, I think understanding what kind of like what what our revenue needed to contribute to our below the line expenses, i.e. our gross margin um, up front. And then also thinking about like everything that it was going to cost us to actually deliver and sell the product right. um, was a really important exercise because you, you, you have to capture the cost of all of those pieces or else you just end up with no money to hire an accountant or <laughs> like right. do the other and- things that you have to do. And that's where a lot of CPG companies get in trouble because they assume that they can just keep raising money to fill in that gap a little bit. I have a great product. People love it. Stores want it. It's flying off the shelves. Yeah, it's really expensive to make right now, but eventually that'll get better because I'll be buying so many ingredients that my costs will go down. But they don't go down all that much until you're really, really big. So you need to give yourself a bigger buffer earlier. Um, and I think that's what, that's gotten lost a little bit in the last several years. And that's what, again, going back to that Shobani incubator, you knew that early on. Like you partnering with Ledestri 
brought, I would imagine, made your product margins significantly better so that you had money to to spend on things that you don't when you're little, like promotions and slotting and hiring a team and all of that stuff. So walk me through your thought process a little bit, like, because you said that you had to convince them to take you um, and to, to make everything there. So A, how did you convince them? And B, you know, I know it's like, we don't want to get too inside baseball, but you know, you really entered into a true partnership with them. You didn't just convince them to take you. So can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. Um, when it, when it came to like convincing Ledestri proper, I guess, meaning like the staff and the family, that, that Ithaca Hummus was a product that they could feasibly make, I really have to give most of that credit to Frank. Um, I think what, I think my role in that was convincing Frank that I was a very determined individual and right. was capable of just working and, and outworking. Um, right. and, and I think he took that and then he did the work of like, all right, if this was going to work at Ledestri, how would that look? Because right. he was really the expert. And so it was really like me convincing Frank that I was the right person to be embarking on this journey. And then Frank convincing Ledestri that like, right. hey, we should definitely latch our wagon to this person and this product. And this product, right. Um, what did you do with the facility? Like what did you do with the 10,000 square foot facility once you did move in? Yeah, so we – that. We were leasing 10,000 square feet of about a 20,000 square foot plant. And uh, so, but we leased basically like an empty box in that place. So we did have to buy a lot of equipment. Um, some of that was moved to Ledestri. Like our mm-hmm. kettles that we use to cook the chickpeas are, are still at Ledestri today. Right. I know you've, you've seen those. So, I have. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> But uh, and then we moved like our filler to Ledestri, which Ledestri runs a very high speed plant. So my little like twenty four minute yep. cup filler they they used for like six months, and then basically like pushed it off the edge of their loading dock and watched it explode and right. had a little party. <laughs> Um, so, but, you know, Ledestri bought some of it. We sent some equipment to like third party, like equipment sellers and things like that, but we were leasing the space. So it was really just a matter of ending the lease. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yep. And then what was your thought process? Like, talk to us a little bit. I mean, for me, you know, going to, you know, convincing a large co-packer to partner with me, I think might be my single greatest achievement. Uh, mm-hmm. as in the business. Um, you know, for me, again, it goes back to those margins and the expertise on that team and their capacity to make a million pouches a year or whatever it is. Like, what what were your driving? I mean, were what you had a shelf life issue to be, you know, to be clear, but what what were the driving sort of things that you really wanted to make this happen to solve? Um, definitely shelf life. And, uh, that was the big one. The right. HPP. I remember when, it's when I was, f- it's expensive. And when I was first starting the business, I read an article about hope foods, um, mm-hmm. who make, they make hummus out in Colorado and they had just bought this HPP machine and it solved all the world's problems. And I just remember wanting that so bad. And so like, f- that was always a goal of mine. And when I found out Ledestri had it, I knew I had to be a part of that. 
Right. Um, yeah, it's expensive. I mean, it's like a $4 million machine or something, right? I mean, it's not very, an expensive machine. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so there was that. And then there was also like, if I had struggled for two years to like really give it a go of like, I'm going to build my own factory mm-hmm. and it's going to be like Willy Wonka. And right. People are going to come and take tours while right. like, behind the glass. <laughs> the is and, made, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I did that for two years. And after like enough of like literally sleeping in my office and trying to fix filling filling equipment all night and all day and yep. holding up production and sales while I do that, like I just realized how important the expertise and yep. knowledge that someone like Ledestri has is to a business like mine. And yep. I needed to be able to tap into that if I, if I was going to scale and scale quickly. Yeah. Um, so I've it was been shelf feeling life and capacity. A lot of that. Yeah. I've, I've been feeling a lot of like the expertise stuff this week and last and just very grateful that they have, you know, there are some real grownups there kind of holding our hand through the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, shout, out and, to, shout out to Andy Willits. Oh my gosh, we had Andy as a guest on our morning team Zoom on Friday. And <laughs> just like, because everyone on my team has heard so much about how much we love Andy that like everyone just wanted to meet him. It's, he was like a guest, he was like Paul McCartney. Yeah. Anyway, um, going, going, let's talk about sales for a little bit. Um, I feel like there is Sabra. And then there are a couple of others. And then there's a lot of private label. Um, I know that's a really myopic way of looking at this, like the hummus market. But how, how do you look at the market? Well, when I, um, and I spend a lot of time looking at the category. Um, when I look at it, what I see is uh, really this set of, what I call legacy brands. So right. you've got Sabra, Tribe, Cedars. I include private label in that mix. And then you've got a set of emerging brands. Um, mm-hmm. That would be like Us, Hope, Lantana, Delighted By in like the dessert space. And um, I think the category has really exploded over the last 20 years and the legacy brands, I hate to say this publicly, I say it all the time to buyers, <laughs> but um, they, they've really like run out of steam and innovation. Like yeah. they're just filling the shelf and stuffing the channel yep. full of every flavor under the sun. Yep. Um, and then the emerging brands are really like the role of the emerging brand is to add incrementality and bring new people into the category. Yeah. And the way that you do that is by offering something that's unique and different that you can't get with the legacy brands. And so the, uh, when you look at like the products that, of all those emerging brands that I just mentioned, it's really a battle of like, okay, whose products and whose product lines really resonate the most with the modern consumer that we're all going after? Right. Well, here's a question. So going back, so you have sort of the, the Venn diagram of you know the legacy and the emerging and then, well, I guess it might not be a Venn diagram, but in but the the emerging guys, like how how much more can you be from a cost perspective, like from a Sabra, you know, like at least maybe not per ounce, but just like optically, because you know I'm thinking about this too, right? I mean, the more sauces that we make, the more they're going to be sort of these shelf stable 
old school versions of them. And regardless, we're fresher, we're a better ingredient panel, we're more complicated supply chain, we're more delicious, we're going to be more expensive. I guess the question is like, how much more expensive will the consumer tolerate for an emerging brand, you know, better for you, quote unquote, version than like that legacy brand is question one. And then question two is, you know, are you, I mean, I know you're competing to some extent with these other emerging brands, but in a way you're also kind of all in it together, trying to steal away from the Sabra and the private labels of the world. No? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that. So go back to question one. <laughs> yeah. So how, yeah. what, I mean, I think how much is a consumer willing to pay for a premium product? I think it depends on what that consumer has or consumer base has been pre-programmed to pay in that category for X ounces of product. Right. And in our category, you know, that's really between two ninety nine and three ninety nine for ten ounces. That's about what people pay for hummus on a fifty two week basis in the U.S. Right. And so, when I think about like how much, well, for us, it's a dollar more. Like, can right. we get people to pay a dollar more for our product than the average? And um, that's the goal. And I think that's achievable. Yep. For other pro- for other categories where they're less developed, like. Hummus is very developed. I mean, people yeah. have been buying hummus for 20 years in the United States uh, at yeah. the grocery store. Um, for, for, you know, um, refrigerated HPP sauces specifically, right. those consumers aren't programmed yet to know what to, to pay for that. Um, yes or at least and that's- no, right. Half and half. Some it depends, right? Like if we start going into sort of more approachable flavors that they that they have heard of that they have their sort of like other kind of go-to shelf stable brand then yes um and we're always trying to figure out like how innovative can we be before we've completely you know freaked someone out you know um but then going back to the private label it, you know from a buyer perspective how do you convince a buyer I mean, they're, aren't they always going to be trying to push their own private label versions on their consumers? Isn't that the best for them from a margins perspective or no? From a, from a margin percent, I would say yes. But like you, the other thing that buyers are always looking at are like how is their category developing year over year? Right. And so like if it's just private label year in and year out, then all the pressure is going to be on the private label brand to continue to grow that category. They really need emerging premium new brands to come in and trailblaze like what are the things that consumers care about as as they develop year over year. And um, they want to choose the emerging brands that are the best at deciding what that is and then right, eventually and follow that up with a private label option. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. So we have a couple minutes left. I just want to ask you anything you wish you had known earlier or even three weeks ago that you just learned or you've learned over the last couple of years that if someone had told you when you first started, you would have really appreciated. Um, I wish I would have known the importance in recent history here, like 
the importance of building a team from the ground up, mm-hmm. um, I think is something that I just didn't have an appreciation for at certain stages of this that Mm -hmm. I, that is like a newfound realization for me. And um, so I I think don't be afraid to start from the bottom and build people and grow people and let them grow with you. Right. So speaking of that, um, I mean, has that been a sore spot for you? Like the team or is it just like yeah, more, um, yeah. High, high, highs and lows? I mean, yep. I started with a team of people that helped me like produce and deliver the product, and they were all very like hardworking and passionate and amazing. Um, and then when we moved to Ledestri, yeah, they were all offered jobs there, but it was in a town that was two two hours away, so like yep. wasn't really possible. So. Then I hired um, Frank and partnered with him and got this in, inside look at like, wow, this is like the best case scenario where you hire someone who is really senior in what they're doing and they just fundamentally change your business because they care about it that much. Yeah. And so then I kind of went on this tear of like, how do I find more of those people? Right. Not realizing that like they are very, very difficult to find. Yes. And, and not, a, I mean, it's going to be different in ops than it is in sales because he's still going to be super hands on and boots on the ground in ops. But sales, like you bring someone in who's at that high of a level in sales and they're not going to necessarily want to be pounding the pavement the way that they did 20 years ago. It's like a different, it's a different, there's a different like channel for the human almost. Um, you know, I, I think the same with marketing a little bit too. You know, you need those young kind of creative brains um, for some jobs. And then you need like the sort of really expert sort of, you know, wise people in other categories to some extent. Battle hardened. (laughs) Battle hardened. Um, Yes. Okay. Well, I don't want Matt to start, you know, getting upset that I've gone over time um, but basically what you've done is you've made a company where the product is paying for itself to some extent, and you've brought your costs down so that you don't need to keep on this like cycle of bringing in new money to just keep operating. I mean, that's the way that I think about it. Um, and I don't know many, many CPGs companies that are doing that or doing it as well as you are. So I just want to applaud you again. Um, thank you so much for coming on. And those are my boys, if you can hear them yelling in the background. Um, uh-huh. And um, thank you all for listening to another episode of In the Sauce. Chris, it was really great talking to you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Um, and stay safe. Yeah, you too. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.